This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. We are speaking with Professor Lisa Kavanaugh, who's Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of British Columbia. Uh, she is the guru on love, emotional, uh, and sort of reactions and products and buying decisions. So, so what's your definition of love? I'm going to ask you that. How do, how do we as, scientific, as scientists, how do we define love? Different folks have, have defined it in different ways, mm. um, but when I think the, the easiest way to, to think about it um, is it's certainly it's certainly a positive feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the the biggest part of it is is that it's the sense of closeness and connection uh, to to someone who's a companion, and that companion could be someone you're married to. It could be your daughter, mm-hmm. um, who is adorable, by the way. Oh, thank you. And, and <laughs> Zora, are you listening? You just got a compliment. Say so, so. Say thank you to uh, Professor Kavanaugh. Uh, she'll send you a note later, Lisa. <laughs> but go ahead, please. <laughs> yeah, and, and so this, this feeling of love can also be extended. Um, and, and so I know we're talking about Valentine's Day today, mm-hmm. um, but that sense of love can actually be extended to other people um, in terms of who may not be in our immediate circle of concern or mm-hmm. our family or our neighborhood or community group and actually start to feel that sense of closeness and connection and caring and defining that person as part of ourselves or part of our circle of concern, even if they live in a different country or a different continent. And so a lot of work in cause-related marketing, I think, is oftentimes most effective when it can actually um, cultivate that feeling of love and get people to care mm. beyond that immediate circle or their local community or their, their only their family. And for brands, Lisa, so we're, they're, they're really trying to push us on this, I would imagine, uh, intuitively speaking, in the sense of, you know, they want to they move us away from, well, I like this brand to I love this brand. Is that, does that same kind of connectedness and, you know, those, those very positive emotions around feeling a deep affiliation that also applies to brands as well, correct? Definitely. And, and I think that's when we talk about, you know, building brand relationships. Um, ultimately, we're using social human relationships as a metaphor for mm. what brands are trying to do with us as consumers. And so what is a typical study like in terms of trying to capture somebody? I mean, you, you mentioned some very interesting types of emotions like love as being different from lust, for example, and hope and pride and caring and all of these wonderful things. How do you how do you run a study on this? Because I would imagine it's challenging to try to get to elicit these kinds of things in a controlled setting. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you need to be creative because you want to do it in a way that's naturalistic. So when you talk to your friends who are working, you know, for Fortune 500 companies or some of your Wharton alums, <laughs> that they know that there's a there there in what you found in your laboratory studies mm. or your more controlled field studies. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that I'll oftentimes do that in my studies, um, you know, traditionally in academic studies, we'll ask people to use kind of autobiographical memories. We'll ask them to think about a time when they felt that emotion, so when they felt love, and to describe it or write about it or just bring it to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, in other ways, when I want to do something with, that has a, a bit more of a kind of an external validity to it, that has a, a, a more real world feel, I'll use things like greeting cards. I'll oh. have people under oh. auspices of a, a study by a greeting card company read actual greeting cards uh, that oh, I can obviously cool. script. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have them watch ads that have been masterfully produced by many of our friends at advertising agencies and creative agencies. Mm -hmm. I'll have them look at print ads because that's how we oftentimes encounter a lot of these emotional themes. Mm -hmm. 
Now, Lisa, I want to ask about this important question of the notion of not trying to trigger that, oh my God, I don't have a relationship idea, doing it in a way where you can depict, if you're an advertiser, other types of relationships. Are they as effective at eliciting the power of the love construct compared to romantic relationships? Or do you trade off, when you're trading off the possibility of not triggering a negative effect, you're essentially trading down the ability to create a powerful sense of love and an elicitation on the part of the consumers to be able to do that? Or is it exactly the same? Can I elicit love in the exact same powerful robustness with a friend or family relationship context as I could as I could with a uh, romantic relationship? What does the data show? All you need is love, America. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So it's just, it's pretty powerful across the board then, huh? It is. And so one of the things that I find uh, is, is you can look at these same types of ads, and I mentioned earlier, you know, switching out an image, and I can show the same types of ads. If, if the, if the uh, tagline is obviously generalizable enough um, and, and trigger similarly positive feelings of love and, and companionate love specifically mm-hmm. you know, with, with pictures of, of friends and family members, uh, and that's the beauty of this. The thing that's striking to me, and, and particularly when I uh, did this research on relationship reminders, was to find that reminding people of a relationship that they have mm-hmm. doesn't actually give a big boost. It's oh. actually the, it's the reminding people of relationships they don't have that's an absolute decrease. And so oftentimes marketers and advertisers are shooting themselves in the foot by showing these limiting relationships that make about half of consumers uh, feel <laughs> like they don't belong, like they are not kind of worthy of reward at that point in time. Um, and, and so that, I think, is the biggest takeaway, because I think oftentimes people, I think, are helping themselves by celebrating and featuring a lot of romantic love. Mm-hmm. And, and reality, um, it's creating some, some aversive feelings and, and a sense of a lack of deservingness with significant portions of the population. And I, I should also mention, this doesn't just have to happen with romantic relationships. This can also happen with family relationships. So, oh. and it's... it's you know, if we think about the rate of a declining rate of marriage and the delays of marriage in terms of demographics mm-hmm. uh, in North America, and in particular divorce rates being as high as they are, mm-hmm. that there are roughly half of adults uh, in the United States alone who are single uh, at any given time. And so those, so let those types of numbers really sink in uh, when, when we're thinking about marketing our products and brands. And so I think it's interesting because your research, Lisa, points or actually has a really nice connection to some of the the ways that marketers are trying to basically uh, promote Valentine's Day. So I've heard there's there's this word floating around that I'm hearing called Galentines. Yeah. Talk a little bit about this idea because I think it fits directly well with your research, no? Absolutely. And if, if, if you or any of your listeners have a Bitmoji, you've also seen that for Valentine's Day, there's a Galentine's Day Bitmoji available to you. <laughs> yes. um, that, that really this idea of, of celebrating platonic relationships and, and friends and love shared between our besties, right? Our, our mm-hmm. best friends, our gal pals, uh, our bromances uh, for uh, <laughs> the men in our audience. Mm-hmm. And those types of, of relationships are wonderfully effective at creating people's sense of, or creating feelings of love and cultivating a sense of belonging that can be really powerful 
not only to their own emotional well-being, but also uh, in, in, in affecting consumers in a positive way. Very, very cool. So what's some of the, the, the newer work that you're looking at, uh, some of the, some of the, the research that you're just, just getting started? Uh, I know that uh, listeners are not probably not aware of this, but uh, this week we have a giant uh, conference in Dallas called the Society for Consumer Psychology. A lot of researchers will be there presenting. Are you, are you going to be at that conference, Lisa? I am actually not at that conference, uh, Americus, because I'm I'm actually joining you from Tokyo right now. I'm, oh, wow. I'm teaching our MBA students here as a part of a, a global immersion experience. Nice. And, and one thing I, I do want to mention that's very relevant to the Valentine's Day is a piece of things is that yesterday, so we're with the time difference, uh, yesterday was Valentine's Day here in Japan. Mm-hmm. And in Japan, uh, they've there's this term of Japanization, um, where they take uh, traditions or things from other parts of the world mm-hmm. and put their own Japanese twist on it. Okay. And so in Japan, women actually give chocolate to men. That's oh, really? tradition here. Oh. And then on March 14th, it's called White Day. Okay. And at that point, men give chocolate to women. <laughs> Interesting. Now, on April 14th Uh-oh. is Black Day. Okay. Which in Japan as well, more and also in South Korea, is considered Singles Day. So that's the day for the people <laughs> who haven't received chocolate on February 14th wow. or March 14th. Wow. So it's really kind of interesting to think about these cross-cultural yes. uh, pieces of, of the holidays that uh, we're celebrating today in, in North America. Interesting. Well, how would you? Or sh- yesterday in this case. Or yesterday uh, in this case. Well, we appreciate you joining us from Tokyo. So, how, yeah. how do you think your studies would play out across in, in a different culture, let's say, that have maybe a different way that they would define the construct of love? What are your thoughts on that? So, so I haven't gotten as deep into the large enough sample sizes to be able to make any. Mm, I see grandiose statements at this point. Um, mm-hmm. But what I, I do love to look at is, is thinking about the role that relationships uh, and identity and these emotions play in different cultures. And so mm-hmm. we started our conversation earlier speaking about love. Um, but much like in you know in other parts of the world, we say, oh, that there's you know multiple worlds for snow. Or in, in, uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I call home, mm-hmm. uh, we talk about multiple types of rain. And having, <laughs> having spent the previous seven years in Los Angeles and not seen much of that rain, uh-huh. the difference between showers <laughs> and, and, and versus actual rain, uh-huh. scattered showers, these all mean very different things. Very different and things. And love mm. um, can mean very different things across different cultures. Now, we all have a concept of companionate love, and that's why I've focused my research on that as a starting point. Gotcha. And, and all cultures have a, a sense of relationships, social relationships. Right. But the emphasis they place on the importance of different types of relationships, the romantic versus platonic or different family relationships, varies. Right. So right. much uh, much stronger family ties in certain parts of the world oh. than, than others. In collectivist uh, cultures, you mean? Yes, that, that would be the expectation. Right, uh-huh. right. Coming back into kind of work on identity. Mm, very, very cool. And so the, the next phase of your research is going to take these emotional and love sorts of constructs into what new areas? So really fascinated on how this, this how, how love not only influences uh, people in, in their consumption settings and, and also their pro-social behavior, um, and, and really trying to also understand these, how these relationship reminders influence actual consumption mm. experiences. Okay. So in, in some work I've been doing with um, one of my doctoral students, um, Jennifer Lee, Jennifer we've Lee? been looking. Yes, uh-huh. we've been looking at how relationship reminders actually influence consumption enjoyment, um, and, and really how it changes what people taste and oh, what people hear, and I actually see. changes their sensory experiences. So that's oh. been a really neat uh, line of work that that we're working on. Very cool. 
Any, right pre- now. any preliminary findings you, you could share with our listeners? I'm going to keep those under wraps. Oh! We're we're, we're reviewing (laughs) reviewing some of that right now. But but one of the, but I can give you the upshot, um, which is is pretty neat because we've presented this work at at conferences already. So for the the more academically inclined, they can find this on on some of our ACR and SCP websites, uh, Association for Consumer Research and Society for Consumer Psychology. Mm -hmm. But what we're finding is that Consumers who are reminded of a relationship they don't have, and this could be a romantic relationship or this could be a platonic relationship that you've lost touch with. So imagine a college roommate that you're no longer in touch with. Mm-hmm. You're reminded of a best friend you used to have, mm-hmm. but maybe no longer have, um, who's no longer really in your life in the, in the same meaningful way. Uh, is that what happens as, as we actually see a, a dampening of consumption enjoyment for positive experiences? So positive things are less positive, oh. but also negative experiences are less negative. Oh, interesting. And, um, and so it has some really interesting downstream implications for all types of uh, retail experiences as well as restaurants. And um, for you, I know how much, uh, how talented you are in the musical realm, but also how much you love music. <laughs> yes. It also influences what people hear um, and, oh. and as far as how they, whether the extent which they enjoy the music that they're listening to. Very, very fascinating and cool, cutting-edge, innovative research. Lisa Cavanaugh, thanks so much for coming on the show with us tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Americus. Excellent. Listeners, you can find more about Lisa and her research at solder.ubc.ca. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.